0: It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This week on episode 214 of the Barbell Medicine Podcast, it's our research review for February 2023. We selected three brand spanking new papers. The first paper investigates how exercise timing may affect health outcomes. The second paper looks into what variables in a meal affect how many calories you eat. And the third paper tries to answer the age old question. What's better for chest development, flat incline or decline bench press all that more on this week's podcast. This podcast is brought to you by pioneer belts trusted by some of the world's strongest athletes choose pioneer for your weightlifting belts and accessories. Pioneer has belts to fit your needs. Whether it's a 13 millimeter thick four inch wide lever belt for powerlifting a Velcro hybrid belt for CrossFit and everything in between. They'll also custom make a belt to your specifications. All products are made in the USA, and check them out at GeneralLeatherCraft.com and support those who support us. This podcast is also brought to you by Bells of Steel, maker of high-quality exercise equipment that won't break the bank. Established in 2010 and located in Indianapolis, Indiana, Bells of Steel's mission is to help you get stronger, healthier, and more muscled for your hard-earned dollar. Bells of Steel has a ton of cool products for outfitting your home gym, including calibrated iron plates, air bikes, belt machines, racks, and much, much more. If for whatever reason you don't love your new equipment, Bells of Steel offers a 30-day money-back guarantee to return your order. they will even pay the shipping back. Check them out over at bellsofsteel.us and use code BBM23 to get 10% off select items. We got the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki, in the house. What's going on, man?
1: Hey, man. Uh, doing okay. Just finished up a slightly longer-than-usual day in the hospital, and we're okay.
0: It's like an RP, RP nine okay. day. Everybody's RP alive. nine. No, you're not right. even
1: close to RP nine. RP nine plus days were residency. I don't. I don't go that close to failure these days.
0: <laughs> you're staying it further away. Well, sub I, six boys. Sub six boys. Yeah, yeah. Sub max boys. Very cool. Uh. Well, yeah. Excited to have you on the podcast. It's our, our research review. And so, if you're a new listener to the Barbell Medicine podcast, welcome. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. Uh, if you haven't listened to a research review before, what we do is we pick three topical recent papers and we discuss them. Uh. We just share papers back and forth like pretty frequently uh, i think our text thread like if you go back through it it's like memes weird stuff we find on the internet and papers for the most part <laughs> and some of the papers obviously are are too far into the weeds in medicine for to actually be relevant to our our audience but uh, we try to keep it focused around sports medicine general health training stuff like that um, but yeah maybe we'll do a wild card uh, episode next next month and we'll just do We'll go way into the weeds, you know, management of liver failure or something yeah, like that. or yeah, New tuberculosis treatment <laughs> <laughs> recommendations talk about rifampin or whatever. Yeah, I'm ready. Yeah, he's ready. <laughs> uh, so anyway, uh, you know, it's been a minute. We, we, the last two episodes were our uh, recent seminar Q and a from Atlanta, Georgia at, uh, and it was at Alpharetta alpha power strength and weightlifting. Austin, tell it, tell the audience uh, how things are going. You, uh, you got a little quad pain going on. I know that, uh. Yeah, I don't know, well. man.
1: I feel like uh, I feel like last year's training, I was really riding high for for quite a long time and set you know effectively PRs on all the lifts and multiple rep PRs and things like that. And I think I'm just you know paying the paying the tax on that this year. <laughs> the things uh, ever since basically my my move um, out to, to El Paso. I think that came with a fair amount of life stressors and job changes and things like that. And so I've had kind of a series of of uh, setbacks um, in the past several months. Currently dealing with a bit of a left lateral kind of quad. I don't know if it's a strain or tendinopathy or what the deal is, but um, a little frustrating, but I'm also applying my usual strategy of just kind of detaching from that and uh, finding the things that I can do. And so doing much more isolation type stuff, machine stuff, dumbbell stuff, just bro work here, there until, until things start to feel better. Uh, And it will pass.
0: So you have leg pain. It's not knee pain just like, no,
1: it's like, it's like the, the, the outer aspect of my upper left thigh.
0: I see. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Like, Oh, proximal to the hip. Prox-
1: yeah. It's, it's from the hip and like just below that. Yeah.
0: Interesting. Oh, TFL, yeah, kind baby. Of a, it's kind of a weird th- spot. Yeah. You know, I've never yeah. had
1: anything like this before and I didn't really provoke it in any way that I can tell. It just kind of happened. So I don't
0: know. Well, well the, unit what the universe does that we both can't be strong at the same time. Correct. And
1: Last year was my year to be strong while you dislocated multiple shoulders and yeah, <laughs> and I, things.
0: Yeah, you know it's interesting. So this is like again probably the most sustained uh, sort of non-strength focused work that I've ever done in my actual training career. Just mean I'm I'm not doing a lot of singles. I'm not training for a powerlifting meet or whatever. But boy, you you boy is strong yeah, right you're now. Doing really well. I, today I squatted 545 for f- five sets of four Ooh, on
1: a, yeah, that's a, you've never done that or even any real, anything really close to that before.
0: <laughs> no, no. And so I was supposed to, the rep range was four to six, uh, or I had the opportunity to take a single last week. I squatted 585 for a single, at like seven. And I was like, Ooh, I could squat 605 or whatever today. Eh, I was not really feeling it. So I decided to do the rep work instead. Yeah. And so it was four to six reps. First set should have been a six. And so I did 545. And on the fourth rep, I go, should I? I think a PR would be like a set of five and I was like, ah, eh, this is RP six. And then I just yeah. did three more sets there and, uh, it moved on. I'm That's supposed awesome. yeah. And then I think I'm scheduled to pull, I think six thirty five for a couple sets of four or five this week, just whatever. And, uh, yeah, it, it's so weird because, and as you mentioned, there are ebbs and flows in mm-hmm. sort of like yeah. your strength performance. Yep. And it doesn't always line up perfectly with like a dedicated, you know, meat prep block or like, dedicated strength work. I, I, obviously what I'm still doing now has some strength element to it. Uh, but yeah, just kind of comes and comes and goes. And ideally everything lines up when you actually have a meet right. schedule. Yeah. Yeah. But, but for right now, I'm not going to enjoy it, man. Yeah.
1: It's a good place to be. <laughs> I, yeah.
0: Some, somebody, somebody uh, will, I don't know if you, you saw the story yesterday, the, uh, the old trying to figure out how to pose do oh, okay yeah i, I have <laughs> did, no idea <laughs> no idea how to do that but like man that is hard posing like body that stuff's hard and also makes no sense to me because I'm you're like obviously trying to showcase your muscular development but you got to, like weird angles and w- there's like mandatory poses and stuff like i have no no training in that at all like i think every gu- every guy
1: it's, it's almost its own sport you know? yeah like, yeah, well, yeah right <laughs> yeah.
0: like you know how to do a, d- a front double biceps flex and like a rear a rear one and then um this woman was who was helping me she's like okay we're gonna do a lat spread now i'm like oh what (laughs) she's like she's telling me how to do this thing and i'm like this does not feel like it's it's right but she's like oh that's not not not, not how you
1: think about using your
0: muscles (laughs) yeah yeah she goes oh that's that's uh that's pretty good she's like what do you do for your back i'm like mostly deadlifts to be honest and she's like oh Okay, I never heard that one before. (laughs) Here you go. Uh, So, all right. Well, yeah, the universe—you know—it'll balance itself out. I'm sure Uh something weird will happen. Uh, We have we have uh, some live in-person events coming up. So, we'll be in Brooklyn, New York, for our two-day health and performance seminar. That's Austin, myself, the rest of the crew talking about the intersection between health, performance, and medicine. Um, And that'll be uh, in May of this year. And then the pain and rehab guys just scheduled. A another seminar in Bozeman, Montana. I believe that's in June. So if you're interested in joining uh either of us for a two-day live in-person seminar, the stuff is in the link in the description below. We also still have some new merch on the website, the Barbell Medicine Lifting Club stuff is still available. We still have a few flags left, uh, but once they're out, they're out. And then we'll have to make another run of a new design. So uh get those while they're still available. And we just uh yeah, we launched, I guess. What was it, two weeks ago, three weeks ago now? New website. We get a lot of good feedback on there, but uh, if you haven't been over to the Barbell Medicine website in a while, go check that out. It, uh, it's a lot cleaner, a lot faster, and uh, all of our material is more organized. So I think uh, if you guys haven't been on the Barbell Medicine website in a while, check that out. We'll be uh, uploading and publishing some new information, some new articles and, uh, and stuff over there. And lastly, a plug for our app. Barbell Medicine app is still going strong. Um, if you have an iPhone, you're a blue, a blue bubble text person, you can check out the app uh, on the app store. It's a free download. You get to access to all of our programs, all of our information, et cetera. If you're curious, like, oh, what a, what a Barbell Medicine training program uh, look like, a template, you can try them for free the first week for all of our templates are freely available there. So this is especially if, if you you know get on our Q&As or ask me anything or whatever. And you're like, hey, I've got this hip pain, I got knee pain, low back pain, shoulder pain, whatever. uh, What do? Go download the app. We have templates for all of those things in general, and you can run the first week and see if that is a good entry point for you. And if it is, hey, well then you can get the full template and and run it out. Uh, Or if you know you're curious about playing around with some some different stuff, we've got programs to suit all of your goals. So check that out on the Barbell Medicine app on the Apple App Store. All right. Let's dive in to these papers. The first paper is titled Associations of Timing, a Physical Activity with All Cause and Cause Specific Mortality in a Prospective Cohort Study. This is by Fang et al. Uh this is published in the Journal of Nature Communications in February 2023. J- hey, just to be clear, is this you think this is a spin-off of the nature journal? I believe it is. Like you think like it's like nature and then a lot like, of journals oh, no. do that. We need like nature communications, we need like nature nature telegram. (laughs) It's like the
1: Freakonomics podcast network (laughs) and they just like have all these sister things. You kind of, you kind of do that.
0: Well, I went, so I went to the JAMA site uh, last week and it's the Mm -hmm. first time I've been on their like centralized website in a minute. Cause normally we just get linked uh, stuff. They've got like open access JAMA, every every
1: subspecialty, every subspecialty.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No sports medicine though. Just curiously missing out on the sports medicine thing. Set,
1: t- the, the research is trash. So just yeah, bother. yeah, maybe maybe I'll send him an email
0: like, hey, you guys need a editor in chief or something like I'll do this for you. Uh, so in any case, yeah, this paper was published February 2023. So it, again, it's hot off the presses. Um, so we all know that physical activity improves health and reduce risk of many different diseases, such as heart disease, type two diabetes, certain types of cancer. But this study looked at does the time of day matter? When people exercise, so there's some background here. Previously, data in humans has not found a consistent effect of exercise timing. Some data uh, shows like better glycemic control, so how people control blood sugar in response to exercise. Um, so, for example, if people exercised in the morning, ten thirty in the morning versus four thirty PM, uh, they had better glycemic control. They were able to keep their blood sugar at normal levels better, um, than those who exercised in the evening. That's in line with some of the chrono nutrition stuff. Did you, uh, you've been on the Sigma podcast a bunch of times. Does Danny, does he just like blurt out chrono nutrition stuff regularly? Like, you know, it just gets <laughs> triggered and it spits out something out. Well, or? it is,
1: it is Alan's PhD, area of PhD research, which is, I think where a lot of that stuff kind of, kind of came from. And then Danny plays along with him. I think he placates him.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so we did an episode, uh, with Danny Lennon uh, and multiple episodes with uh, Alan Flanagan, um, so you can search through our our podcast history if you're curious on this chrononutrition nutrition stuff. But yeah, so previously some data has found that, but other data has found no real effect of exercise timing. So for example, a study titled "The Efficacy of Morning." exercise versus evening exercise for weight loss. It was a randomized controlled trial uh, investigated the time of day and its effect on weight loss. They used 100 uh, previously sedentary individuals uh, with overweight or obesity, and they randomized them to either work out in the morning from 6 a.m. to 9 a.m., uh, or the evening, uh, which is 4 p.m. to 7 p.m., or a control who didn't exercise at all. They were both prescribed 250 minutes per week of aerobic exercise for 12 weeks, which is a pretty hefty dose. Yeah, uh, They both lost the same amount of weight, which is about three kilos in 12 weeks. Uh, They both had the same improvement in VO2 max, and there were no differences in their resting metabolic rate uh, or physical activity sort of minutes. So they basically both exercised the same. There was just really no difference. And so, yeah, if people ask us, hey, is there a difference if I train in the morning or the evening, you know, we're kind of shoulder shrug emoji. It Mm kind of depends on what you're looking at. And then uh, once we have a specified outcome, whether we're talking about health trajectory, weight loss, performance, whatever, then we can kind of look at the literature and see what it says. So the other interesting kind of side note on that is that from the chrononutrition side,
1: where there's been this research looking into the physiologic impacts of eating at certain times of day or of not eating at certain times of day, it's usually been broken down into kind of different types of people. They call them chronotypes, which is like uh, some people are quote unquote morning people. Mm -hmm. Some people are not morning people or more like, you know, uh, night owls. And so we kind of observe some of these different physiologic effects, um, depending on that, that individual person's type. And so I wonder, you know, in some of these research studies, uh, looking at it from the exercise standpoint, I, I, I don't imagine that they broke, broke it down based on these different types. And so if you kind of threw everybody into the mix, um, and had a blend of both kind of more morning people and evening people, that obviously some of the stuff you would expect to come out in the wash, it's just a, just a guess, and, and you might get a kind of a null finding as a result. Or ultimately, kind of in the, as, it, as we see in the nutrition world, the effects are not massive. And so that also contributes to being difficult to find effects sometimes.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, that's a perfect segue into this. Uh, so this is all based on like the circadian rhythm, and that plays a significant role in regulating different physiological processes that influence everything from appetite, sleep-wake cycles, exercise performance, et cetera. So it's reasonable to suggest that the physiological responses to exercise could be different in the morning compared to exercises in the evening. With respect to athletic performance, uh, there was a recent meta-analysis of 113 separate articles that showed that technical skills, strength, power, anaerobic and aerobic performance tend to be higher in the afternoon and evening than in the morning. Though the acrophase, which is the time in the circadian rhythm cycle, for technical spe- uh, skills to peak is slightly earlier in the afternoon as compared to strength and conditioning performance, which peaks earlier in the evening. But both of those things are tend to be better in the afternoon and the evening compared to in the morning. It's thought to be due to an increased body temperature, increased levels of arousal, and as you mentioned, circadian rhythm preferences, so- some people prefer obviously to work out in the morning some people prefer to work out in the evening and some of that is actually determined by their lifestyle job occupation stuff like that um, so in any case if people are like how you know what time of day am i going to perform the best squat the most have the best you know performance in a conditioning piece or you know play soccer the best ideally you'd probably set that up if you were a betting if you were a betting person to be in the afternoon or the evening unless you were like an early chronotype in which case you would be in the morning. So when this meta-analysis actually kind of did some subgroup analysis of people who preferred the mornings or like had trained in the morning you know, and prepared themselves for that challenge, the results tend to wash out effectively.
1: Yeah, that rem- this reminds me of uh, back in 2008, during the Beijing Olympics, how big of a deal it was to when, you know, of course, they set up a lot of the highest stakes competitions, of course, to uh, fit US Eastern Standard Time. <laughs> and so that was a, I mean, I, I was obviously, mostly aware of it from the swimming standpoint, because typically swimming meets, you know, championship meets have prelim- prelims in the morning when you're, you know, not as, you know, ramped up and and fired up and everything and you just qualify for finals and then finals is in the evening when everything is firing on all cylinders and they completely flipped it in beijing so every swimmer who was there who's been you know training and competing their whole life under this morning prelims evening finals format had their whole world turned upside down when they had to do (laughs) prelims in the evening and and finals in the morning and yet, you know, they probably flipped their schedules a fair amount in advance and started, you know, training accordingly and practiced. And we saw, of course, all kinds of insane performances go down because that's what Olympians do. But it was a big deal that was it was like, you know, everybody was losing their minds about the impact of this time change um, compared to people's habits and preferences and things like that.
0: Yeah. Now, this wasn't actually in the study we're talking about this th- on this particular podcast. But yeah, if, I think if you have like a, uh, a competition or event and it's at a different time of day than you normally would train and you have the opportunity to train at the time Mm -hmm. that the the meet or the competition is going to be you you would do that similarly if you have to travel across time zones you would want to get acclimated to that give yourself enough time uh traditional rule of thumb is like one day for every one hour difference now obviously that's not reasonable for everyone to do but you know sports are unfair and uh, (laughs) that's what happens so so question austin if you had a powerlifting meet would you prefer for it to be in like your way in and then competition to be in the morning in the afternoon or like an evening prime time session
1: i would prefer an afternoon session that would be my personal
0: preference yeah i think i think if we're on the same time like time zone or whatever i would also prefer an afternoon unless i was cutting weight in which case Mm -hmm. let's get that thing out of the way in the morning yeah yeah yeah. uh but yeah at different times i would want to train it would be early evening or late late afternoon early evening something like Mm -hmm. that just because that's when my personal performance tends to peak. But if I had a, I remember I had a meet at the Arnold in uh, 2013 and we weighed in at 6 a.m. And I was like, yeah. So I had, I, the couple of weeks leading up to that, I was training at seven or eight in the morning just mm-hmm. to get ready for that. Uh, the first few weeks, I was not a happy camper, but uh, you know, you get used to it just like anything yep. else, or mm-hmm. you die. That's <laughs> it. Or you adapt or die. Um, okay. So this particular study, again, is investigating the effect. Uh, of exercise and its timing during the day and health trajectory. So, specifically, they're looking at all cause mortality, so, death from all causes. Uh, cardiovascular disease-related mortality and cancer-related mortality. Now, what they did here is they used the UK Biobank data. This is a large population-based cohort study that recruited over half a million participants aged 40 to 73 years old between 2006 and 2010 in England, Scotland, and Wales. Um, so basically, they underwent this detailed baseline assessment. And then about five years later, They recruited uh, about 100,000-plus participants of this group to wear an accelerometer for a week. Uh, And of those 100-plus thousand people that they recruited to wear an accelerometer to track physical activity, they got sufficient data from about 92,000 individuals. So that's the data set they used here, 92,000 individuals who wore an accelerometer uh, for a seven-day period to effectively look at this. And so, yeah, that's how they measured – Physical activity, um, and it's not just formal exercise that they track. Basically, it's a triaxial accelerometer it just tells you when you're moving around at a sufficient pace or sufficient displacement to qualify as moderate to vigorous physical activity. Kind of hard to do that with an accelerometer, um, but that's what they tried to do. The average age here was 62, is a little more than half dude. Uh, so 56% of the uh, uh, subjects were men, and 44% were women. They had about uh, 16,000 individuals who exercised in the morning, which they kind of broke down into 5 a.m. to 11 a.m., 41,000 plus uh, exercise midday. That's 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. And then 8,300 uh, exercised in the evening. That's 5 p.m. to midnight. And of course, there was another 26,000 plus that had mixed. So effectively, they weren't clearly into one uh, phase or another. Uh, similarities between the groups, the smoking and drinking status were pretty similar across all groups. The healthy diet score was similar. That's They basically use a questionnaire to assess dietary patterns, and those were pretty similar across all the groups. Medical history was also similar. Um, important differences between the groups, uh, the individuals who exercised in the morning tended to have a higher education level. Um, there was shorter sleep durations in the evening and midday groups. Uh, and then the midday group also had more, a higher level of volume, of uh, physical activity compared to the other groups. So let's check out the results here. Overall, uh, 3,088 individuals died, 1,076 died from cardiovascular disease, uh, 1,872 died from cancer, uh, related issues. And there was about a seven year follow-up from when these individuals wore, got the accelerometer and then they, you know, this is when all the events happened in the next seven years. Uh, there seemed to be, regardless of time of day, a dose-dependent but non-linear effect of uh, physical activity on health trajectory. Which, again, just uh, in this particular study, which uh, they evaluated, all-cause mortality, cardiovascular disease-related mortality, and cancer-related mortality. The when I say non-linear, that basically means it's yes, it's still a dose you know dose-dependent relationship, but it's not like one to one. So the sort of improvement or reduction in risk of premature all-cause mortality, uh, cardiovascular-related mortality or cancer mortality was steeper uh, in those first about two hours of exercise per week, so zero to 150 minutes per week. And then there were continued benefits after that, but less dramatic overall, which is kind of what we've been saying, like getting people to meet the physical activity guidelines is probably the biggest bang for the buck. After that, there's still additional benefits. They're just not quite as dramatic, which makes sense. So yeah. Uh, moderate to vigorous physical activity reduced all cause cardiovascular related and cancer related mortality. There seemed to be a signal that there was a greater reduction in cardiovascular related mortality for people who exercise during the midday uh, and also mixed. So they had kind of like a blend of exercising through all the different phases. Um, I'm not sure how confident I feel in that finding the confidence interval, which is a statistical term, basically tell you how sure you can be that the effect you observed is real almost crossed one. And if it does cross one, you're kind of like, eh, there's maybe no real difference here, but it still persisted after some uh, correction for different variables. Uh, But they also had more training volume too. On average, the people that exercised in midday and mixed. So throughout multiple phases tended to be more active in general, but whether or not the effects they saw were due to volume overall uh, didn't seem to be clear based on the study. The effect seem to be strongest in individuals who were less active previously, elderly individuals greater than 65, those with pre-existing cardiovascular disease, and men. Um, As for why, we'll get into that shortly, but that's kind of what they found, that of all the different phases, either training, exercising, or having more activity in the middle of the day, or having mixed sort of sporadic physical activity throughout the day, uh, seem to have a lower risk than focusing it all in the morning or all in the evening. Uh, that was for cardiovascular disease, um, and all cause mortality, but for cancer related mortality, it didn't seem to be a difference whether or not people exercise in the morning, midday evening, uh, or, you know, mixed. So the take home for me, I I don't know that this means that training in the middle of the day is actually more beneficial than other times, uh, for health, given how moderate to vigorous physical activity was assessed. Again, it's not like people were just, oh, I'm going to train at 1 PM or I'm going to train at 2 PM. It's just like, it seemed like most of their physical activity that was detected by accelerometry was clustered in the middle of the day. And so to what extent that matters, I'm not that confident to say if you have the opportunity to train in the middle of the day, I I don't know that to be true. Uh, also the accelerometry only reported like absolute levels of physical activity. So just minutes. Um, but as far as the intensity and how that correlated to the individual's relative fitness level is unknown. It wasn't really assessed here. So I don't really know what people were doing. Maybe they were doing more gardening. Maybe they were doing more resistance training. We'll just never know because it's just an accelerometer and it's pretty binary. Like you're being active or you're not. So I don't really know. Also, as you pointed out, it's not randomized. They didn't like, you know, take very similar demo you know, groups of people and split them up and tell them you have to exercise during this time. Or even if it was formal exercise, we don't, we just won't know. Yeah, the, that's a that's a
1: tricky health. aspect with, with cohort studies. And we've had these conversations before as they relate to like nutrition related research, because it's very, it can be very difficult here. We have different groups that we're following for many years to see the long-term effect of this exposure. So in the nutrition world, we're looking at the exposure being, you know, a particular aspect of diet or the dietary pattern. And as we've talked about, it's tough to lock people up for, you know, 30 years and give them different diets and see the impacts that it has. Somewhat similarly, it's tough to, um, whether or not you locked people up, but forced them to do a particular kind of exercise at a particular time of day for years on end to observe (laughs) rates of death and things like that are are challenging. And so those logistical um, aspects make it more challenging to do randomized trials. But the downside in this situation of doing something like a cohort is that we're taking people who who have self-selected exercise at particular times of day and we're following them over time and we're seeing kind of some associations with with outcomes that may or may not be significant but there can be reasons or um, I, I should just leave it at that. There, there can be reasons why people are self-selecting to exercise at a particular time of day that you are not measuring or accounting for. That, yeah. um, That's what randomization achieves is that it kind of, um, you know, equalizes many of those things when it's done properly. Um, and so there, there can be reasons why. I mean, you mentioned, interestingly, like the morning exercises are higher tended to have higher levels of education. I wonder if that relates to, you know, maybe their occupation. And then we know socioeconomic status has big impacts on all sorts of different health outcomes and all this other stuff that sure, you can do your best to adjust for, but you know, it's, it's tricky. And so that's just something that stands out to me here.
0: Yeah. I view this more as kind of like a generating additional hypotheses, like, Oh, well, we saw this signal. What if, what if we do a randomized controlled trial you know, after this, where we actually do put people into, all right, you're working out in the morning and then a similar demographics working out in the afternoon. And they're all doing the same exercise. And another group is exercising in the evening. And then there's a control group that doesn't exercise. And then you can like, you know, evaluate any differences. You'd feel more confident about differences found there. Um, On the other hand, this study does have the benefit of being like kind of like a free life, free living trial where people are just left to their own devices and you're kind of just seeing how they go. So a good hypothesis generating sort of study that previously didn't exist. um, And I think that subsequent studies should definitely investigate this. One of the interesting sort of reasons why they thought they might have found this signal had to do with a potentially higher cardiovascular uh, event risk um, in those with pre-existing disease um, in the morning and in the evening. So it looks like there's this catecholamine reactivity and cardiac reactivity peak At 9 a.m. and also 9 p.m. That's basically where noradrenaline or norepinephrine, adrenaline or epinephrine, those levels tend to peak at those times. And the heart tissue itself is like more sensitive to it. And so, if you have individuals with pre-existing cardiac disease and they are self-selected, you know, to work out in the morning or the evening, maybe that's what we're seeing here. Is this sort of maybe I don't know, (laughs) but but I do view this overall as more of a hypothesis-generating sort of. Uh, prospective cohort study that we can subsequently use to evaluate the effect of timing rather than like the nail in the coffin, like, yep, everyone should exercise in the middle of the day. Also, I'd be just curious, like if we could figure out how many of these folks were resistance training and does that have any sort of yeah. like moderation effect, you know?
1: Yeah, it might, again, I keep tying this kind of similarly to the nutrition literature where we don't draw, like w- we use a lot of prospective cohort data to, to, you know, um, Make recommendations off of, but we feel even better about those recommendations when those recommendations are also, or those findings are also in line with other types of evidence. So we've talked about like this idea, like in the blood lipid world, multiple converging lines of evidence. So we have, you know, mechanistic data from Petri dish stuff. And then we have, you know, short term metabolic ward randomized controlled stuff. And then we do have longer term prospective cohort stuff. And then we have big picture nutritional epidemiology. And when all of it tends to point in the same direction, then we can feel more confident in the recommendations. And so yeah, it'd be interesting, you know, to do some you know, to to see are there measurable physiological differences um, between having people you know train at different times of day um, that would be relevant to potentially to any health outcome in like a very short time frame? And does that fit with what might be getting suggested by this kind of longer longer term thing? I think zooming out even further than that, though, there's obviously always going to be the practicality aspect to when people exercise, and so to the, even to the extent that somebody may derive some health benefit from exercising at a particular time of day versus another, if, uh, practically it doesn't work for them with their life, their job, things like that, then, uh, we would rather you train than not train. Which, <laughs> and mm-hmm. so, um, you know, if, if on the other hand, you're like, I can do this any time of day I want, no matter what, when's the best time that I should train. That's kind of more the question that this kind of thing is getting at, but that's a pretty tiny minority of the population. I feel like that we're talking to at that point.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And those individuals, well, depends on what you're looking to get out of your, uh, out of your training. If it's like, I need maximal performance. I think I could make a case for early afternoon or early evening training, uh, for like intra workout performance. Uh, unless you're a preference, you're like an earlier chronotype or whatever, but yeah, that's a, maybe that's a separate podcast. Yeah. Okay. So that's a wrap on the first study. Again, this is episode 214. I'm here with Dr. Austin Baraki. Second study that we looked at, is titled "Ad libitum meal energy intake is positively influenced by energy density, eating rate, and hyperpalatable food across four dietary patterns." So this study was done by Tarafuzino, along with uh, Dr. Kevin Hall and others, in the January 2023 edition of Nature Food. Again, do you, <laughs> you think this is part of the Nature conglomerate? Like, <laughs> probably. <laughs> I think. Like, imagine if we came out with like a a, a journal called like nature exercise and had no affiliation with nature. You think they'd send us a cease and desist and be like, guys, probably, may- probably yeah. Yeah, <laughs> we, maybe we do it and see what happens. Yeah. Uh, so for some background information, there are a number of meal related factors that affect energy intake, so calorie intake at that meal, such as protein content, energy density. So is it a uh, high calorie food? Low calorie foods, uh, the percentage of the meal that comes from hyper palatable, really tasty foods, for example, uh, water content in the food, eating rate and more. Uh, For example, um, in ultra processed foods, these hyper palatable foods uh, tend to remove natural components of foods and add things like sodium, fat, sugar, etc. And this can increase the reward that people experience when they eat them and their desirability. Uh, But it's usually not proportional to feelings of fullness. So people tend to eat more, this overall tends to increase energy intake. We've talked about that. Well, I don't know how many times on this podcast, but uh, it's been a lot. So in this study, they basically looked at how does energy intake at a meal relate to energy density, so the calories per unit volume of food, the protein content, eating rate, and percentage of food derived from hyperpalatable foods. So in this study, there were thirty five adults that were in a metabolic ward study for two separate twenty eight day periods. And let me just stop that stop here. Can you imagine being in a, <laughs> a metabolic ward for a month?
1: Like, I would not be signing up for that.
0: No, you're in a, under lock and key. <laughs> Effectively, they're providing, you know, you're just hanging out in a research facility. They're providing all the food or restricting access to food. And basically you're, you're a lab rat, you're a human lab rat. Uh And so when, with respect to like nutrition studies, metabolic word stuff tends to be some of the stuff we hang our hat on the most, just because it's the most well-controlled. The caveat there is it's not really representative of like free living conditions, what people do in the real world. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, like it being so controlled is useful for like finding out an effect but as far as whether that transfers over to the real world, eh, there's just more stuff that happens outside of the lab. But I'm just saying, this is pretty interesting. The two separate metabolic ward studies were, were basically compared. Yeah. So uh, one of the uh, studies that they com- they used here uh, basically compared a minimally processed diet that was either low carbohydrate or low fat. So on the low fat diet, it was plant-based. 10% of the calories came from fat. 75% came from carbohydrates. Uh, for the low carb diet, it was animal-based, it was ketogenic and 75% of the calories came from fat 10% came from carbohydrates. Uh, and that in that study they basically found that the low-fat diet led to about 700 calories uh, per day less uh, energy intake than uh, the low uh, uh, low carbohydrate diet. So if you were like, oh, if I go to a low carbohydrate diet, would I predict myself to eat less or more food? And it's like, well, Based on this me- highly, tightly controlled metabolic ward study, I would not predict that people on a low-carbohydrate diet would eat less than a plant-based, low-fat diet. But if you weren't following a low-fat, plant-based diet before, that might not apply to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second study, uh, again, another 28 days in a metabolic ward, the sa- uh, same number of adults. Um Basically, they had the same levels of carbohydrates and fat that were moderate levels, so like 49% carbohydrate, 35% fat, but varied the amount of ultra-processed foods that they were consuming. So one group, about 85% of their diet came from ultra-processed food, and then the other group had 0% of their food coming from the ultra-processed. Foods. And so meals were designed to be matched for calories, energy density, macronutrients, sugar, sodium, and fiber. But on average, people who ate 85% of their calories from ultra processed foods ate about 500 calories more per day than those on a minimally processed food diet, even though the macros were the same. Um, and so those are basically the studies that they compared uh, to see what factors of each meal kind of predicted how many calories people were going to eat. Results wise, it looked like higher energy density, increased energy intake in meals across all diets. So it doesn't matter if it's ultra processed, minimally processed, low carb, low fat. If the meals got a ton more calories per unit volume, people are going to eat more calories, which is no surprise. Sp-
1: sp- spontaneously. Yes. Without cor- realizing it without wanting to, without not wanting to, it just happens.
0: Yes, <laughs> correct. They didn't like consciously think, hmm, I wonder what the energy density of this meal is. They just eat more.
1: Your lizard brain Uh, takes over, and then
0: you eat more. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Meals with greater energy density, ultra-processed foods, and higher protein intake are consumed more rapidly, which also tends to drive higher energy intakes, as an increased eating rate increased energy intake across all diets. So again, if your meal has more ultra-processed foods and has more protein, people tend to eat those faster. And then that tends to portend an increase in calorie intake with those combination of variables. Uh, As far as the effects of a previous meal on subsequent calorie intake, the previous meal energy intake decreased subsequent calorie intake at meals in all diets, except for the ultra processed diet, which uh, is pretty interesting. So that means you could eat a meal that's got a thousand calories in it from ultra processed foods. And if your diet continues to rely on ultra processed foods, you're not going to like compensate. Compensate yeah. for that. Yeah, you're just going to eat more still, which uh you can, you know, predict what happens after that if you continue to eat more and more and more, you're in a calorie surplus, tend to gain weight, uh general badness tends to ensue uh, with respect to body composition and body weight. Uh interestingly, protein content decreased the subsequent energy intake so in the next meal, only in diets that were rich in ultra-processed foods. So previously, and I know we've said it on this podcast, and you know if you spend any amount of time on the internet, people will say, "Oh, you got to eat more protein. Protein is very satiating; it's very filling. It'll you'll eat less calories." That seems to be mostly true if people are eating a diet that has a lot of ultra processed foods in it. But in other dietary patterns, whether it's minimally processed foods or you know non processed foods, that doesn't really seem to hold up. Means that protein itself is not like a predictor of satiety uh, when you correct for that, which I thought was interesting because, man, we've been saying this for a long time. And in fact, when you even look at things like uh, there's a term uh, called the satiety index basically tells you, uh, predicts how full you're likely to be from a a meal, the higher in dietary fiber, the higher in dietary protein, and the higher in water uh, that the actual meal is tends to make people more full. But, it, you know, when actually evaluated under a very tightly controlled setting, it seems like that uh, the protein content in and of itself uh, seems to only decrease energy intake in ultra-processed food uh, sort of dietary patterns. Uh, and then lastly, the percentage of ultra-processed foods increased energy intake across all diets. Um, it was more significant. Uh, for meals of low energy density. So just low calories per unit volume, people just eat a, way more. Uh, and it was lower for meals of high energy density. Basically, if there's a ton of calories, yeah, you're still gonna eat more calories overall, but not quite as much total volume of food than if uh, it was of lower energy density, which is kind of what you would predict. You're still gonna eat more calories than you expected, just to a greater degree if uh, if there's less calories per unit volume. So the take home for me here. Is that ultra-processed foods tend to increase energy intake via multiple mechanisms, um, increased energy density, increased eating rate, and this non-durable effect on satiety or feelings of fullness. Effectively, if your diet's rich in ultra-processed foods, I don't know that you stand a chance in like really regulating or achieving a you know healthy body weight and body composition if. Unless you're genetically just, you know, an outlier and and
1: (laughs) yeah, you either have, and, and we've talked about this before is that the more of that stuff somebody wants to say they want to incorporate in their diet, the more of an active effort it's going to take. And even with active effort. If your genetics are not going to be supportive of that, then it makes it even even tougher, which is why the environment is uh, is, is is tough out there for <laughs> for a lot of folks.
0: Yeah, it's hard out there in the streets. You're just That's like, right. We, we're over, overrun with ultra-processed foods. They're uh, readily available. They're super cheap, super tasty, and they tend to pack a lot of calories. And because they aren't that filling, again, the results are predictable. People are going to yeah. overconsume them, be in a calorie surplus, and then they're going to gain body fat and then sustain that body fat level, that excess body fat, um, because again, the food environment is rich with all these ultra-processed foods. Uh, The other interesting thing that I thought was, it's wild to me. In the study where they compared, um, again, moderate carbohydrate, moderate fat intake, but one of the diets was 85% ultra-processed foods. The other diet was no ultra-processed foods. On average, the people in the ultra-processed food uh, group would eat about 3,900 calories per day which is 500 calories more than the minimally processed. Uh, And again, despite the average BMI of 27 um, and the average age was 31 in this, in this group of 20 adults, 10 male, 10, 10 females, the weight change was, was wild. Uh, So the, the people eating the ultra processed food heavy diet gained about 0.9 kilos in two weeks. And the people on the minimally processed diet lost 0.9 kilos in, in two weeks, uh, still on 3,200 calories a day. Mm-hmm. And like, how many, I don't know how many times you've heard this, but I know I've heard it a ton. People are like, Oh, I'm eating 1800 calories a day and I'm not losing weight. And I'm like, I don't, I don't think that you're eating that, those, that few of calories, but you may be underestimating and underreporting, which is far more common mm-hmm. when they've done studies with, uh, like registered dietitians. So experts in nutrition and they have them, Hey, tell us how many calories you're eating. They're off by a large amount. And that number increases as people become less and less trained and also as they carry more and more body fat. And Mm -hmm. so it has nothing to do with intelligence, just like training. And then also just like humans are just jet bad at recalling (laughs) what they've actually eaten and estimating and and whatnot. So I just thought it was interesting that, yeah, on 3,200 calories a day per, on average, people still lost weight, which is Again, if you ask people, hey, is 3,000 calories a day a lot? Most people would say, yeah, I would probably gain weight on 3,000 calories a day. It's like, well, n- maybe not if you were under lock and key in a metabolic <laughs> board study because you would actually be eating the 3,200 calories per day and not you know, what you are calling 1,800 or 2,000, which is really closer to 3, or 3,500. So uh, do you ever get patients? I mean, you're seeing people in the hospital, so you're not really asking them their calorie intake. But how many times have you heard that where people are like, I'm eating 1,500 calories a day, 1,800 calories a day. I'm not losing weight. What's, what's wrong with me? And you're like, well, I can't really invent some metabolic disease that you actually have. So I think the more likely thing here is you're eating way more calories than you're reporting. And yeah. so figuring out why that's the case is probably... Yeah, We're honestly, into the discussion.
1: Honestly, I've heard it actually go in interestingly in both directions. Um, definitely from folks who are interested in in weight loss, the underestimation is even a well known thing. It's been researched that regular folks tend to, you know. Um, make those kind of estimation errors calories,
0: yeah, overreport exercise. Yeah, yeah. But addition,
1: but, but as you might imagine, folks in the hospital that I'm seeing oftentimes are, um, they can potentially be extremely underweight and like bone th- or like rail thin. And I'm asking them about their diet and they're telling me that so I, I eat so much I'm eating all the time. And so it, interestingly, it goes in the other direction for that population. And it's like, uh, most likely not the case. Like maybe you feel like you're eating a lot because you feel full because you have this medical condition that is suppressing your appetite like cancer or something like that. Mm -hmm. But um, in terms of total calorie intake, I suspect it is not much when you weigh, you know, 38 kilos or something like that. Like I've had adult humans weighing sub 40 kilos in the hospital and that's like, uh, that's a bad sign. Yeah.
0: Yeah. People's body weight and particularly the dynamic nature of their body weight. So whether it's going up, down or staying the same, that that's telling you their energy balance So whether they're in a deficit, they'd be losing weight. If they're in a surplus, they'd be gaining weight. And if they're at maintenance, by definition, they'd be maintaining weight. And so despite the report of I'm eating a lot or I'm eating a little or I'm eating a moderate amount, whatever their weight is doing is really is cluing you in on like, well, how accurate is that relationship? And uh, from there, there are a bunch of different interventions that you can do to shift the scale one way or the other, uh, literally and and figuratively. Mm -hmm. So, okay. Last study. It's titled The Analysis of the activation of upper extremity muscles during various chest press modalities. Now, Austin, I know those are your favorite paper. You just <laughs> really are wanting to know like what type of upper body pressing exercise is going to be the best for your pecs. I think that's, I think so I have a I text could, from you.
1: Here, here's, here's a caveat. Cause I could come at this with a lot of snark, uh, but <laughs> I will not. So, right. so basically I, I, um, came across a conversation recently that was getting at like, how important is it even to worry about um, like programming at all? Because I did this really simple thing and I got super strong and it's like, you know, (laughs) that's, that's uh, to, to use the common vernacular these days, this person is speaking from a position of privilege, I I would say, right. They, they didn't, you know, uh, programming details may not be super important to them or may not need to be super important to them because they are they have favorable, you know, something about their situations, favorable enough genetics or, or environment, whatever the case is, that they are able to make a ton of progress on potentially, you know, not a super complicated thing or whatever the case is. But that should not be generalized to everybody else. It's like somebody saying, you know, who, who's been, you know, super thin their whole life saying, you know, just diet just doesn't matter because I've never had to worry about it. And here I am. And it's like, well, <laughs> maybe not the issue. And I could sit here and be like, well, you know, I did not have to think about activating my PECs in a particular way to generate the adaptations of strength and hypertrophy needed to bench 450 or whatever the case is. But mm-hmm. just because that is the case, I would not generalize that to others. Um, and others may need to think about some of these details as they apply to their individual situations more than I did or more than I care to or whatever the case is. And that's all fine. People can nerd out on whatever they want. So yeah. here's my charitable take on this whole topic. No,
0: yeah, I like that. Yeah. So this paper is basically looking at different types of chest press exercises. So incline, flat, decline bench, and trying to see hey, is there any like signal here that tells us one way or another that we could predict outcomes from that? Uh, this was. Uh, written by Christian et al published in the February 2023 issue of the Journal of Strength Conditioning Research. Uh, So for some background information, the angle of the bench press gets a ton of attention when it comes to discussing both muscle growth and strength development, though the vast majority of these claims are either completely fabricated or speculative based on mechanistic data. So for example, a number of studies have investigated the electrical activity which we'll refer to as excitation, of the anterior deltoid, the pec major, and specific parts thereof, and other muscles during the flat bench press, incline, and decline bench press. In general, but certainly not always, the muscle excitation... So again, that's the electrical activity of the pec major, and particularly its upper clavicular portion, so the part near the clavicle or your collarbone, uh, and the anterior deltoid, the excitation of those two muscles tends to go up as the incline angle increases. So as you ratchet up the incline bench press, you're going to use more of the quote-unquote upper pec and anterior deltoid. As the bench angle goes down, muscle excitation for the middle And lower portion of the pec major increases, the latter is particularly true with the decline bench press. So the bros will commonly say, oh, if you want to get a sick pump on your lower pecs, you want to work your lower pecs, decline bench, you'll also see a concomitant reduction uh, and excitation in general. uh, Let's say electrical activity of the muscles of the anterior deltoid when you do that as well. Uh, But these findings, again, are far from universal. There's a 2017 study that compared the electrical activity of these muscles during a six rep max flat incline and decline bench press. And they showed no significant differences in muscle excitation levels, that electrical activity of the pec major, the anterior deltoid, uh, the posterior deltoid, or the latissimus dorsi. So basically they said, hey, let's do a six rep max, six RM on these three different types and see if there are any differences. And they didn't find any. And you're like, but how is that possible? It's like, huh, maybe there's more to the story here. Uh, what's more is that differences in EMG findings. So again, this electrical activity of the muscle are not necessarily predictive of actual outcomes that we care about uh i don't care what's going on electrically at the level of the muscle provided there's some electrical activity and you're you know the muscle hasn't been like denervated the nerves not been severed you don't have like a neuropathy uh but we're really concerned with well okay does a higher like emg level correlate with muscular hypertrophy? Does it correlate with increased strength gain? Because if not, like, I don't know that I really care that much. So a 2020 study found that there were no meaningful differences in pec major hypertrophy or pressing strength after doing eight weeks of doing only flat bench, only incline bench, or doing combined flat and incline bench presses. And so you're like, well, dang it. I can't get a reliable signal here from electrical activity. I don't really know what's necessarily going to happen. And There's not this. There's not a reliable effect on hypertrophy or strength outcomes. So, what what are we doing here? So, maybe we'll do another study, which is what they did here, to see if we can clear up some of these uh, some of these issues. So, in this particular study, they used 10 men and 10 women of college age with one year of resistance training experience. And it's important to note that they used women here as well because most of the studies that I previously talked about have no women in there. And some of that uh, is due to this concern about using emg in women particularly on pressing exercises because of the amount of subcutaneous so that's uh the area under the skin um women have more subcutaneous fat particularly on the breasts Uh, and so the thought is like oh maybe this might compromise the readings that we're getting. Uh, but there's studies that show, uh, that EMG is reliable in individuals, uh, with a higher amount of subcutaneous fat. So in women, as long as they're not an individual with obesity. So these excess body fat stores, uh, so they included women, which is cool. Um, so this study, they collected EMG data again, that's electrical activity at the level of the muscle on the anterior deltoid. They also said they did it on the medial deltoid, which is an error. Anatomically, There's no such thing as a medial deltoid. It should be called the lateral deltoid, if anything, um, because the origin, so where the muscle starts is actually like the lateral most aspect of any part of the deltoid. It's on the uh, acromion process uh, (laughs) the superior, the upper part of the acromion process, uh, where it meets the collarbone. And again, this is the most lateral aspect of the entire deltoid origin itself. So calling it the medial deltoid is kind of like a red flag for me as a (laughs) individual with a master's in anatomy. I'm like, why you do this? But that's an aside. Uh, and then they also collected EMG data on the pec major. So they did this during the barbell flat bench, the dumbbell flat bench, Barbell incline bench set at 30 degrees compared to the floor angle. Uh, they did it on dumbbell incline bench at 30 degrees. And they also did it on barbell and dumbbell decline bench, again at negative 30 degrees relative to the floor. Uh, they also did, they staggered the order by which these individuals were doing dumbbell uh, or barbell exercises first or second to basically mitigate any uh, effects for bias or fatigue. Uh, and they did six reps at 70%. Which what do you think that is? That's like six at uh, six reps at RP six or something like that. Six reps at RP five. Uh, yeah, that sounds about right. About something six like yeah. that. Yeah. And they took five minutes of rest in between each exercise. Uh, of note, they set the grip width for the uh, they like mandated a particular grip width for the pressing exercise with barbells. It's called one point nine times the biacromial width. And how they measure that is you go from one end of the acromion process. Uh, of the of the uh, scapula to the other one, they measure that, they multiply it by 1.9 and then divide it by two, and that gives you a number where you would set place the hand relative to the center of the barbell. Now that's you guys are probably listening to that, and you're like, "What? The, okay, what does that mean in like normal terms?" So when I <laughs> when I measured mine, that would basically put my pinkies on the score marks of the barbell. So I would call that like a medium grip bench press. So not particularly wide, not a close grip, but somewhere in the middle. As far as why they chose this, there's, I think, one paper I think they they cited. There might be two total papers I've ever seen on this that show maximal excitation and activation of the pec major with this grip width. But uh, I don't know how strongly I believe in that. It's just interesting that they mandated a grip width, although I think if I was a researcher, I'd probably have done the same just to like eliminate that variable. And they also made people use a neutral grip uh, with the dumbbells. So the expected outcome here is that there's going to be more anterior deltoid excitation and muscle activation uh, with incline bench, right? As the bench angle goes up, we expect more anterior deltoid to come into play, more of the upper pec, if you will, to also come into play. Uh, And we think that we'd have less anterior deltoid activation and excitation and more pec major excitation and activation activation. During decline. Uh, so, kind of like this inverse relationship. As anterior deltoid uh, excitation goes up, we'd expect pec, minor, uh, pec major to go down and vice versa. So, let's see what happened. Uh, results wise, there were no statistically significant differences on pec major between the incline and decline barbell. Uh, so, no statistically significant differences on pec major excitation between incline and decline barbell. So, completely just wrecked our hypothesis right off the gate. Uh, there was a small difference on dumbbell incline compared to dumbbell decline, and this small difference was worth zero point one one eight millivolts. And just to put that in perspective, that is a very small electrical difference. It's statistically significant, significant, but is it clinically significant? Uh, when we look at studies compared to like comparing like squats to leg extensions and the sort of EMG difference uh, for the quadriceps particularly muscles like the uh, rectus femoris for example we see large like whole number differences in electrical activity so 0.118 i'm like that could literally be the difference due to like placing the surface electrode in a different area or like it moving or someone's got a little bit more fat or less fat or whatever and so i'm like To me, that looks like an error, just just an error. It's not big enough for me to care about, certainly. All right. There was also a statistically significant difference in anterior deltoid excitation between incline and decline Uh, barbell bench and dumbbell bench. uh, It was greater in the the incline, which is what we expect. And this is 0.5 millivolts difference uh, in the barbell uh, mode and then 0.38 millivolts difference in the dumbbell mode. Again, very small electrical differences. I'm like unconcerned. Uh, there were no statistically significant differences between flat bench and incline or decline for any of the muscles. So the flat bench compared to incline or decline, no real differences in pec major uh, or anterior deltoid excitation. And then when you compare women to men, the anterior deltoid excitation was significantly higher in men. uh, And so was the pec major, uh, significantly higher in men. And again, they thought this might be due to subcutaneous fat, but they didn't also report any of the actual raw values. So I can't tell you how big that difference was. Uh, the greatest amount of muscle activation was observed in the for the pec major and the anterior deltoid at an incline position uh, for both dumbbell and barbell uh, inclined bench press compared to the other two types. And so taking all of that into consideration, what does this mean to me? I don't care. I, <laughs> if, I can, if I can wrap it up succinctly, it's that I don't care. And the reason why I don't care... Uh, is because these differences that they found were very small. And and I cannot stress this enough, this is only in surface electric uh, surface EMG. It's not in oh, we saw a hypertrophy difference. Oh, we saw a strength difference. It's just in this electrical activity. And so what we're trying to say here is that, okay, maybe in theory, If we see an increase in EMG, this electrical activity, maybe there'd be an increase in hypertrophy or strength, but that is a logical leap that I am not ready to make. So EMG studies aim to draw conclusions about muscle force production, muscle activation, uh, and mechanisms of force production. But this is problematic when based solely on EMG values. At face value, at best, EMG amplitude, so how high the electrical peak is, is strictly indicative of muscle excitation. Uh, EMG experiments can't be used to infer motor unit recruitment or how often those motor units are discharging electrical impulses because both the motor unit recruitment and the rate at which they're discharging electrical activity have significant and nearly equal contributions to EMG amplitude. So that means that just because EMG is going up, that doesn't mean that you're using more motor units. It could just be that the existing motor units are being told to contract more often. And so it's not like, oh, higher EMG, more motor units. It could just be the same motor units being told to contract more frequently. Uh, So the theory here again is that the greater the EMG amplitude implies greater muscle excitation, which implies greater muscle protein synthesis, which implies greater hypertrophy response. This argument breaks down when considering that acute fractional muscle protein synthesis, uh, which is a direct measure of muscle protein synthesis itself, is not correlated with hypertrophy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Thus, even if EMG amplitude was a vol- valid surrogate for muscle protein synthesis, a study that to our knowledge has yet to take place, it doesn't necessarily predict hypertrophy outcomes. Effectively, if you stimulate the muscle at all to a significant deg- degree, you're going to maximize muscle protein synthesis afterwards, and EMG doesn't seem to predict that very well at all. And again, this study hasn't even taken place to like connect the dots. And so saying that, oh, this muscle has a higher EMG level slightly higher EMG level, that maybe means that it's going to produce more hypertrophy. It's like, well, how did you get there? Show your work, bring receipts. And they're like, I don't have any. You're like, yeah, me neither. So that's why I like don't care. That's why I said that at the beginning. Um, and again, I don't think that any of these differences that I reported, or the study reported rather, in EMG values are large enough to really matter. If there were whole digit, you know, two, three, four millivolt differences or whatever, between the different conditions, you know, uh, then maybe I would care. So if you compare like the effect on pec major excitation between a squat and a bench press, I would expect there to be a large difference. And then I would expect to say, yeah, well, maybe the barbell bench press is better at driving pec major hypertrophy than the squat. And people would say, yeah, of course it is idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Go but find it's far- something better to study. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But like the, the difference between incline and decline and flat, I'm like, Man, these differences are so small. Like, what do they even mean? and, And so I can't tell you. All I take this to mean is just another study that shows kind of equivocal results and doesn't really inform what we should do with respect to programming. So, what do I think we should do with respect to programming? I would probably work each muscle and muscle group through multiple different ranges of motion exposing the muscle to, uh, again, relatively long ranges of motion relatively and different angles using a variety of different rep schemes, depending on goals and different proximities to failure, depending on the movement characteristics itself. If it's very fatiguing, very heavy, a compound lift, like a dumbbell bench press or barbell bench press compared to something like a hammer strength, you know chest press or dumbbell fly or chest fly or something like that, I would probably stay further away from failure on a compound lift that's heavier, uses more muscle mass, and has more degrees of freedom than something that's kind of fixed range of motion, uh, isolation. But I don't know that that's relatively controversial (laughs) at all. I just don't know that if by incorporating the incline bench press, you're going to get bigger pecs, particularly in the upper region near the clavicle. Just like I don't know that if you're going to try to really grow your lower pec, doing a decline bench is going to be your saving grace. I don't see any reason to not do all of them in the course of a training career or a a training block if you're really trying to maximize hypertrophy. But I can't tell you that one is going to be better or the other and predict that. I can only assess that afterwards. And so after making these initial choices about exercise selection, rep scheme, proximity to failure, et cetera, the nuts and bolts of that should be changed iteratively based on not only personal feedback, so what people like, what they prefer, how they responded, uh, just the results. And uh, that's kind of how we program anyway. So I don't know that this paper really changes much for me outside of you know reconfirming that EMG data is, makes me shrug my shoulders and go, eh, I don't know how important this is. Yeah. What, do you, what do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm inclined to agree and, and to kind of tie it inclined back to, multi- to agree? multiple Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'll tie it to multiple things. So first is like in the same vein that we talked about with the nutrition aspect and the exercise aspect earlier, we can have multiple different like lines of evidence that look at something and we would prefer a bunch of things to converge and point in a similar direction. And this, you know, this is not nothing, I suppose. It is a line of evidence. But additionally, as you said, there's a difference between looking at this and um, you know, surrogate kind of um, uh, measure that we have effectively for something that we that, that may be a surrogate measure for something we care about versus looking at the thing we actually care about like hypertrophy. And so then it's like similar, we run into similar problems. Are you going to lock people up and have them incline bench? You might sign up for that study in a metabolic ward for, for a few months to do that, <laughs> but not many people are doing that. And then looking even longer term than that, would anybody bother doing some kind of a prospective cohort study of like people who tend to do more incline or flat or decline? Like, I don't see that study happening. I suppose it could, but like, if you had multiple lines of this, um, kind of research showing, you know, consistent differences in hypertrophy outcomes or something. Again, I do not think any of this is ever going to happen. But that would be a way to draw much stronger conclusions rather than to take some electrical activity. Like, you know, my expertise is not an EMG, but definitely know a lot more about like electrocardiography. And I think about 0.1 millivolt on an EKG, that's one small box vertically. That's like nothing almost. Can't see it will, you know, in some areas and some contexts it might get my attention. Um, but it is very, very subtle um, for, for the for the most part. So um You know so so uh i I have difficulty as you do caring about this all that much uh but i recognize again that for for some folks they're going to go their whole career and not even have to think about anything do something extremely simple and straightforward and get huge and yoked and strong. And that is going to be the freak outlier type of people. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of people are going to have to put more thought into their training and programming. And some people are going to have to put a whole lot and some people are going to put a whole lot and still not get the great, great outcomes they're looking for. And that's just the spec, the, 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 the world we live in the spectrum of life and training and, and things like that. So,
0: yeah. I mean, somebody asked me they're like, why on most of your programs, uh, nearly all of your program, like your templates that are available, uh, if it's not powerlifting focused, why is there so much so many degrees of freedom for for the individual to choose the exercises? And it's like, well, one, we want to make sure the person like prefers the exercise, has access to do the exercise, given the equipment that they have, and can train the thing, meaning they have like a repeatable motor pattern that they can you know do the thing. And so that's going to vary in a population and so we want to give people options that do the same type of thing uh, but then also because not everyone's going to respond to the exercise the same anyway. So like we want people to change it iteratively based on what's what's happening. Look, if you're a flat bench bro, you've just all you've been doing is flat bench press, barbell, dumbbell, barbell, dumbbell and you're not happy with your chest development. I think it is completely reasonable to either split up some of that volume or dedicate some additional volume to incline bench press, decline bench press. Just, you know, flies, whatever, Uh, but not on the basis of EMG, except for the fact that if we did test EMG, like it would be more active than if we were comparing it to like a deadlift or a squad for yeah. the pec major. Um But as far as like these, these small differences in EMG between incline and decline and flat bench that are sometimes there, but not always, I just... I can't get excited. So I want to give you guys the, 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 the tools and, and resources that you need. Um, but some of the stuff you're going to have to either figure out with guided programming, you know, from a, from a coach or through kind of your own trials and tribulations. And so for me, uh, I don't know that I've ever done a decline bench press. I'm just trying, I'm like, I'm trying to think like, I just, yeah, I don't I'm think not trained
1: I, it in dedicated fashion myself either.
0: Uh, let me take that back. I used to, Oh my God, I forgot about this. So I used to train at this place in St. Louis called the lab. It's still there. It was well, not in the same spot. It's a different gym now, but man, the benches at that place were, they were sus as the youth say, mm-hmm. they were, they were real sus. And what I mean by sus, the, the like little thing that catches on the hook to like prevent it from collapsing mm-hmm. was worn the F out. And so I was doing a flat bench press and the thing just slipped and like boop, I'm telling like decline. I'm like, I guess I'm doing decline now. <laughs> but but I don't, you know, for me, I'm completely content with my chest development and how I've been training it and where it's going. So I don't really see a need. I don't do any decline bench work now. I do incline stuff and I do flat bench stuff. I do overhead press and some isolation stuff. But, you know, if I was not getting great results from a hypertrophy respective perspective, I would probably do some decline or at least think about it. Sure. You know. Yeah, why not? Yeah. Uh, The last thing I'll say on this with respect to strength, if you're trying to figure out like which one has the best carryover to strength, it's like, well, how are you going to test the thing? If you're testing your strength via flat bench press, I have reason to believe much more confidently that doing flat bench press is likely to carry over to your flat bench press performance than incline bench or decline bench. If you're testing it via some like general pressing strength, whether it's like an isometric thing, whether it's like a low incline what uh, then sure you'd want to either do stuff that's specific to the test or a bunch of different things that all you you know would then all contribute not perfectly but you know somewhat to the test uh, and your performance therein but uh i mean if you're just talking about getting your bench press up i don't know that i'd be doing a ton of incline work or decline work i would just i'd be benching more and doing variations thereof mm-hmm. would you agree with that That's typically what's
1: gotten me the best results in the past myself. Although again, I don't try to generalize to everybody else, but that's just what I've done. I like it. But for people whose training is more stubborn, then I'm happy to throw more variation and try all sorts of other things with them over time and experiment.
0: Yeah. There was a guy on our forum who was like, my bench press isn't going up. Like what do? And I was like, I need to see, I want to see a video of your bench press. Mm -hmm. And then tell me what exercise you selected for reprogramming. And he's like, all right, so I'm benching once a week flat. I'm doing pressing overhead, pressing i'm doing incline bench yeah. a high incline bench. i was like well that's fine I wouldn't, for
1: general training purposes but not I for agree. this particular goal yeah for the
0: particular goal of a flat bench one rm i think there are better options yeah that i would start that's where i would start that's the heuristic i'm starting from and then i'm going to adjust that iteratively based on your response and, and individual feedback mm-hmm. um that's just my prediction is that that would not transfer or develop somebody's 1RM bench press strength as well as flat bench, maybe close grip bench, maybe a longer pause or pin bench or Austin's mm-hmm. least favorite exercise, the floor press yeah. Re- reverse grip why do you hate why do you hate floor press so much
1: i don't like the feeling uh that goes through my forearms when everything comes down onto the floor it may mm. be because i've not historically controlled it like as well <laughs> as <like> you're <laughs> supposed to i don't know but like having Austin. that acute compression on my forearms, i'd rather just pin bench for the same range of motion i don't think it yeah. does anything different <laughs> really Austin. yeah
0: Austin's doing kipping floor press. I'm not a floor
1: press guy, but (laughs) I know some people much stronger than me are big fans of floor presses and that's cool too.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think it's fine. I don't think that's like my, that's my one weird exercise that, you know, my special exercise. But, uh, all right, that's a wrap here on episode 214 of the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Before you guys go anywhere, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. Also, make sure to check out our sponsors, Pioneer Belts over at GeneralLeatherCraft.com, the of steel uh group at bellsofsteel.us all of that stuff is linked in the description below support those who support us and you can catch us next week and every week right here on the barbell medicine podcast see you